If you've ever listened to Major League Baseball, you probably know play-by-play announcers love to just pepper you with lots of statistics. It used to be you'd only hear about things like batting averages, homers, pitchers' earn run averages. But today, the stats have become much more sophisticated, like how often does the batter get a hit when the bases are loaded? I'm Bob Long. Welcome to Stats and Stories. It's a program where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Our focus this time is on America's favorite pastime, baseball. But before we talk to our special guest for today, we wanted to find out about baseball stats more and how they've changed so dramatically in recent years. So reporter J.M. Rieger gives us a few examples. There are three kinds of lies. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. If it were up to Mark Twain, baseball statistics would likely be limited to the most basic metrics. Home runs, runs batted in, and batting average for hitters, earned run average, strikeouts, and walks for pitchers. But today, these traditional measures of a player's ability to score runs and to get players out in America's pastime have been replaced with vorps, whips, and wars. Not actual war, but wins above replacement, which shows how many wins a player gives a team compared to another player. Pioneered by statistician and historian Bill James, war took center stage during the 2012 American League MVP race. Detroit Tigers third baseman Miguel Cabrera had completed one of the greatest seasons in baseball history and captured the Triple Crown for the first time since 1967, meaning Cabrera led the league in the old line statistics of home runs, runs batted in, and batting average. For the Los Angeles Angels 21-year-old center fielder Mike Trout, 2012 was a season to remember. Trout had one of the greatest rookie seasons in history, becoming the first player since 2008 to unanimously win the Rookie of the Year award. Trout's statistics nearly matched Cabrera's in every category, and he held the advantage in one distinct area, wins above replacement. Trout's war was nearly three points better than Cabrera's and was the highest of any player to win the Rookie of the Year award, ever. Although voters ultimately backed Cabrera, the first Triple Crown winner in over 40 years, it would not have been the first time a Triple Crown winner did not take home the Most Valuable Player Award. Hall of Famer Lou Gehrig failed to do so in 1934, and Ted Williams, who many consider to be the greatest hitter ever, won the Triple Crown without winning the MVP in 1942 and in 1947. How then can fans judge a player's value? Can simply watching a player indicate ability? Or will statistical models soon rule the game of baseball? Whether you prefer wins above replacement or value over replacement, the quest continues for an all-encompassing measure of a player's ability. And if 2012 is any indication, there likely will not be a consensus anytime soon. Our thanks to J.M. Rieger for a kind of a thought-provoking piece to get us started here today. Joining us for Stats and Stories our regular panelist for our show, uh, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, Journalism Director Richard Campbell. And our special guest today is Jim Albert. He co-authored a book called Curveball, which really delves into the stats in baseball. He's also a statistics professor at Bowling Green State University. You know, Jim, I grew up in the 50s with a mother who loved baseball. This was back in the day when the Cleveland Indians were a good team. <laughs> But I, you know, I learned from her all about batting averages, home runs, 
And I think back then we had these we had the discussions whether a guy like Ted Williams should be the MVP as well as winning the Triple Crown. But today it just seems like there's so many more stats out there that are used. Am I correct about that? It just seems like it's changed dramatically. Well, I think now there's a lot more different ways of measuring uh, people's contributions, uh, especially in defense and pitching. I think we under, understand a lot more about that than we used to. And uh, so I think it, it actually just has, to me, it adds to our enjoyment or, of the game. Under, we understand these players, players better. Is, is that, it seems to me there are some fans who just love all kinds of stats, so adding a new, a new level really doesn't bother them. I suppose there are other people, though, that probably never get into the stats at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, I, think, uh, I think especially when you look at a go-to game and you look at a scoreboard, now they're, you know, they, someone comes to bat and they, they give you stats. And I think you, you want to get an understanding about um, the, how good the player is. And I think uh, adding these additional measures I think gives you a better understanding of, of what they're contributing to the team. You know, one of the, the one of the things that that I've seen is that that baseball seems to be be much richer in terms of the statistical information that's that's part of it. Yeah. And I know it, it, as well as all the, the work in baseball that you've done. I know this, as editor of the Journal of Quantitative Analysis in Sports, you probably see lots of other applications. But I, I was curious if you could comment a little bit on why baseball has been so rich in this tradition of of use of statistics and summary of performance, and other sports seem to be have lagged somewhat behind. Well, I think when the game started, and this is back in the 19th century, I think they wanted to make it more credible. And I think by collecting statistics from day one, they started to collect things like runs, and uh, that was collected right away. A batting average is a very old measure. And also, I think baseball is, has a very nice uh, discrete structure, so it lends itself well to statistics because you've got a basic confrontation between a batter and a pitcher. The basic result, you have three outs in an inning, you have nine innings. Other sports, um, like basketball or soccer, are much more continuous in time, so they're much harder to quantify. That's kind of one of the things I was wondering about, too, because it seems to me in baseball there's just more, as you mentioned, that individual man-on-man kind of confrontation where there's so much more team elements to to other sports. Not that there aren't in baseball, but there seem to be more of that in baseball. Yeah, like in basketball, for example, a shot is scored, but of course maybe that's a good that the person made the shot because of a, a good pass. Well, in baseball, you know, a person is a home run. Well, clearly that's the person who did that contribution was the hitter. It wasn't a teammate. So it's a different kind of thing. Have, have you seen, as, uh, you know, over time kind of a, an evolution of some of the defensive and pitching summaries more so? I mean, because early on, it, it seems the history has been with the offensive summaries, that they were very right. rich and, and pretty minimal, you know, maybe errors on defense or, you know, runs allowed for a pitcher. Yeah, I think, uh, like, for example, fielding percentage has been the classic measure of a fielding performance. And that basically says all the balls that you played, what proportion did you make successfully? But, of course, it, it ignores all the balls you didn't make or, like, all the balls that went beyond your range. So, actually, people understand that fielding is a lot more about range than actually catching a ball or making a play that's hit to you. So, now we're able to actually measure where, field, where fielders move. We can actually quantify, you know, the movement, and we have a much better understanding about range. That was one thing. I know if you went back and looked, you, you might have had a third baseman who had five errors in a season. So, wow, that's he was a great third baseman. But if, if there were a lot of balls he didn't get to, he wasn't such a good third baseman after all. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine. Imagine he had a third baseman that just stands still. It doesn't move. Well, he'll do great in the balls that are hit to him, but uh, he's not be very, very useful to the team. Yeah. You're listening to our program called Stats and Stories. 
Our discussion today focusing on baseball and the importance of statistics. Our regular panelists are Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, Journalism Director Richard Campbell, and again our special guest Jim Albert, who co-authored a book called Curveball, and he's also a statistics professor at Bowling Green State University. Well, you know, we thought it would be fun to go out and we sent our stats and stories, Colleen Raza, out to talk to people, many of whom really didn't know a whole lot about baseball. Maybe they watch or listen to it a little, but they're not diehard uh, type fans. We wanted to just know what they knew about stats and their relevance to the game of baseball. Um, to keep up with the players and track the teams, I guess. Batting average, yeah. There you go, batting average. I only know one thing, and that's RBI. So I guess all of the rest of it is confusing. RBIs, uh, it's basically when someone's on base and another batter hits the baseball and the and the other person scores, it's considered an RBI for the person that hit the ball, even if they got out. What is an ERA even? Who knows? I think it's just a good way to kind of track how the players are doing on an individual basis. When you bunt the ball, it's not really a stat, but when you bunt the ball, sometimes it can count, but sometimes it doesn't, and it's, that's confusing to me. ERA, errors per game for a pitcher. Okay. Depending on how many errors, how many hits they get on the field, and if someone gets on base, it's, it's an error. I don't know. I don't know any of the stats. I'm a hockey fan, so I watch hockey. So They do a lot of new stats these days with like the submetrics. I don't really get into or pay attention to. Like I know what like 500 is. Like If they bat 500, it just means that like they strike out, I guess, as much as they, they get a hit. <laughs> well, there's a few things that are just slightly off base. <laughs> and I'm a guy, a stats guy like John Baylor, that's got to drive you meant submetrics. I think they meant saber metrics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah close but no cigar. Yeah, so, and I guess it's appropriate that the, the show to have somebody starting in an off base position here. So, uh, can, you know, Jim, could you talk a little bit about kind of the saber metrics? Uh, where did that Where did that come from? And what What exactly does the saber mean in this context? Well, there is a group of people in the 70s that were passionately passionate about baseball and passionate about the history of baseball. And so they, they started an um, um, organization called Sabre, Society for American Baseball Research. So about that same time, Bill James was, was uh, talking about quantitative analysis. And so it, it seemed natural to use the phrase Sabre metrics to correspond to the quantitative analysis of baseball. I'm just kind of curious, when did you get started? When did you get interested in all of this? Well, I was, uh, when I was growing up, you know, I, I love baseball. I was a baseball fan. I like math. And uh, I played, uh, I like to play probability games in my basement. I played games like All-Star Baseball and Stratomatic. And I would uh, play a whole season and keep stats. And, uh, you know, it was fun. You know, I, I really enjoyed learning, about, knowing about the players and knowing about their statistics. Yeah, that's a. It's it's neat to see. I mean, is there something equivalent to saber metrics in other sports? I mean, I don't I don't know of anything that has that 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 kind of metrics before it. That's another with other well, tracking I, other sports. I yeah. think what's happening in other sports is they're basically following the lead in baseball. So, for example, situational stats, which are very popular in baseball, now we're talking about situational stats in football and basketball. So it's it's more than uh, how you do. It's like how you do in special situations. Can, so can you so give give a little example of situational statistics and summaries that you might see in the different sports? Okay, for example, uh, there's this home versus away effect. How you perform in home games versus away. Generally, the home team is more likely to win, and the advantage of the home team depends on the sport. In baseball, it's relatively small, and basketball, it's larger. Uh, we talk about how people perform in the clutch, 
you know, when it's an important situation in the game, you know, how do you do? And people like to think that people have what is called clutchability, the ability to do additional do special, uh, special performance when, when it's an important situation. Reggie Jackson, he's called Mr. October because he performed well in October. Um, Dave, Dave Winfield was called Mr. May because he didn't do as well <laughs> in, during the World Series. And so uh, to me, that's – I mean, I'm not – I don't believe in clutchability. I believe in clutch performance. But I think people like to talk about that because that indicates something about the, um, about the value or about the, you know, the value of the player. Richard Campbell. Jim, how much this rise in uh, keeping track of numbers and statistics on players, how much is it affecting, you know, the old, the, say the old coaches and managers who used to have make decisions just based on their gut and go with their heart? And do we actually have statistics on how often they're wrong and how often they're right in making those kinds of decisions? I'm sure we do. And if what's interesting about baseball is that some teams have really embraced the uh, – sabermetrics movement. And I think it may be some teams do use quantitative analysis uh, when they talk about managing. Other teams probably don't. They might use uh, sabermetrics more for scouting players, for especially when they draft players. But um, I think a lot of the managing going on in baseball is, is the same as it was 30 years ago. As a, as a just a follow up of the use of some of the these these statistics and summaries, I mean, we, we've there's been controversies associated with things like steroid use and abuse by some of right. the players. You know, could, can you talk about uh, how some of the these these summaries have been used to to perhaps support or, or identify this kind of performance that you wouldn't expect? Well, for example, if you look at Barry Bonds, I mean, look at his performance through his career. I mean, he uh, is very interesting because he hit his peak and then he started to die down, and all of a sudden. He is his performance enhanced dramatically, you know, close to 40 years old. And uh, I mean, there is some I mean, I'm not saying it was steroids, but there's something that caused that change. And you can see the the effect, you know, statistically. Uh, as the story guy here, the guy from the humanities, uh, who also is a big baseball fan, um, I argue, you know, when I talk about narrative, that uh, people are drawn to sports because they are organized like stories. They have beginning, middle, ends. They have rising and falling action. They have good guys and bad guys. And most of all, conflict and dramatic tension. So my question here is, you know, where do stats fit into this picture? How do they enhance the sort of narrative? Because, you, you know, we just heard from all these students and, you know, the, the general public who appreciate baseball at, at a level that's sort of not statistical. And uh, I also am fascinated with, you know, as a kind of humanities guy who was an English major, I kept track. I, I love the numbers. I like reading statistics. There's, there's certainly something that, that uh, enhanced the game for me following numbers in sports. Well, I think a box score of a baseball game is the story of the game. And I also think that uh, some stories are defined by statistics. For example, you think of uh, DiMaggio, you've got to think about the 56-game hitting streak. That is a story. Think of Cal Ripken of his how many consecutive games he played. Think of Ted Williams hitting 406. So that's a great story. I mean, he was uh, last day of the season. I mean, he, he the manager was suggesting that he be benched because he might fall below 400. And Ted Williams said no. He played a doubleheader and actually – raised his batting average the last day. Those are great stories. Yeah. The box score story is, is interesting. I remember, I still have them. In 1975, I clipped every 
box from the Cincinnati Reds year because I thought this is a good team. They're going to yeah. go. And I saved every – and I still have them from every and, – and it does. You can look at them in order and, and uh, read them as the, and, and have a pretty good sense of what the story was. If you go to baseballreference.com, which is a wonderful website for baseball stats, you literally can revisit all these, all these legendary box scores. I think that's kind of interesting, though, because I think I remember reading a book that Sparky Anderson wrote after the Tigers uh, went to the World Series when when he had switched from the Reds to the Tigers. But it seems to me he had a lot of box scores in there. But it seems like baseball, true baseball fans really fall in love with with that element of the game. Yeah, I mean, I I grew up and um, I remember so well uh, Jim Bunning. I was a Phillies fan and Jim Bunning pitched a perfect game on Father's Day. And I still remember that box score. I know where it was when I watched the game on TV. But I also, I, I think it's a beautiful box score because he's all the zeros, yes. you know, and, and uh, Bunning faced 27 hitters. You know, it was perfect, you know. You yeah, know. And you just don't, you don't find a box score that looks like that too often. <laughs> Oh, no, no, yeah. <laughs> so so which, of these, which of these records do you find kind of the most dramatic story or, and, and sort of related to that? Which, which do you think is going to be the hardest to break? I think the uh, consecutive, uh, the 56-game hitting streak is probably one of the hardest ones to break. I think uh, nowadays, um, you know, it's difficult to even have the opportunities to hit during a game. So now I think it would be, be a lot of pressure. And I think once the player gets into a streak, you know, there's a lot of discussion about it and there's a lot of pressure to continue hitting. I mean, it's a, that's a remarkable record. We'll take a quick break, but you're listening to Stats and Stories. And, of course, we are focusing for this week's show on the role of statistics in baseball. I'm Bob Long. Our regular panelists that you've been hearing, Miami University Journalism Director Richard Campbell, Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, and our special guest today, Bowling Green State Statistics Professor Jim Albert, who's also co-author of the book Curveball, which, again, delves into the use of stats in baseball. Again, our Colleen Raza went out and was curious if fans really understand what the baseball statistics are kind of being used for today. It's money-based, too. You know, whatever team has better players and have better stats, they're going to make more money and have more for their program. They're, yeah, they're just pitching. used to record pitching, uh, fielding, batting, percentages of games that are played, percentages of people that show up that don't want to pay $400 for a seat. They're used to follow which player's doing the best or which team is doing the best is the way I see it. Typically, whoever has better stats will bring the team along to the World Series or move further along. So It, it tells who your key players are who on the lineup, who's going to be first, who's going to be second, who's going to be third. Um, it gets you not an idea of how the team's going to do throughout the year. Um, no, because I'm a baseball fan from the fact that I like to go, like, we go to the Reds games, we sit in the $5 bleachers, and we drink beer. And so if they get a hit, it's fun. If they don't, we boo and hiss. So stats make no sense to me. I can't watch a baseball game like that. That's just not part of my <laughs> DNA, I guess. Um, but I do think it raises an interesting issue because we kind of heard the word money mentioned in there. And I think that's another thing that has really dramatically changed what's going on with baseball because I, as a fan, may use baseball stats to to look at one thing, but managers and owners look at it in a much different And, of course, the agents of players also use it much differently today. Yeah, I think what's happening now in baseball is people players are moving a lot more between teams because um, – it's all about contracts, and, uh, you know, I, I follow the Phillies. Everyone's talking about Chase Utley because his contract is up this year. So people are wondering if he's worth, you know, hire, um, resigning after the season. 
you know, so, um, you know, and fortunately that's a big part of it. And so even great players will move. Albert Pujols, you know, hard to believe they would leave the Cardinals after so many years. And uh, it all came down to money. Do, do you, the uh, players start to use some of these new statistics to argue for value? I mean, it seems like there's sort of two levels of this. One is the teams that are deciding who to try to acquire, but also are the players able to leverage their performance on some of these metrics? Oh, I'm sure they're very aware of these of these performances, and I think they, um, you know, they, they use it as leverage, right, for, for the contract. I'm sure it's an important part of their game now. Yeah, Richard? In your book, in your book, Curveball, you make a distinction between sports statisticians and professional statisticians, which is kind of interesting. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think there's a confusion about the word statistics because we think of the people who are just tabulating the data, and they're called statisticians. But to me, a statistician is somebody who actually interprets the data, tries to draw conclusions or uses for prediction. That's more what we're talking about. And there, and there always will be that confusion because you use the word word in two ways. You you talk about the the professional statisticians like you and John uh, use models as a distinction between right. and uh, give us an example of that. I mean, you've already talked about one example, which is the old game some of us used to play. Well, for example, a, ba- a baseball competition. I mean, basically, teams have different abilities, but the point is they play each other, and there's a role of chance involved in who actually wins the game. So you can use a model to describe the role of chance. You can actually quantify, you know, how much, you know, like what's the problem? You can actually quantify and say, what's the probability the best team, the team with the most talent, wins the World Series? And that's that's done by use of, using a statistical model. Very good. One feature that I, I thought was interesting in the, the comments was the idea that the team with the best stats will win. You know, do you, is there, do you have sort of classic examples of, of, of some of the traditional statistics where a team that looked really great on some of the traditional me- summaries just didn't perform well, and, but, but that the new metrics might, have cl- might highlight that and explain it? Well, for example, a batting average is not a really good measure because it ignores things like uh, getting on base by the walk. And, and really, the key issue is there's two, there's two issues. One is you want to get on base, and on base percentage measures that. And you also want to advance runners who are already on base, and a, like a slugging percentage moves that. So, unless you talk about both those things, you really are missing out on what, what's important in baseball scoring. I'm kind of curious, though. There are some stats that I, I wonder how valuable are they. You'll hear a, a play-by-play announcer, for example, say, uh, well, so-and-so only bats 125 when the bases are loaded like they are at that particular moment. Does that really mean as much? Because maybe that guy, if he's batting 125, only got he's only been to the plate eight times with the bases loaded, which doesn't yeah. seem like much of a measurement uh, that you can use. What they, nev- what they never tell you is the sample size. <laughs> and um, yeah, sometimes right. these sample sizes are so small – so really, with small samples, you get a lot of variability. And so you're going to find – and this happens also with pitcher-batter uh, matchups. Yes. I mean, yep. sometimes, you know, you have a certain batter who does really well against a certain pitcher, but that's over many years, you know. And so really, it's not a very meaningful uh, statistic. But unfortunately, managers often make decisions based on that kind of data. My, You know, my job running a journalism program here is is to help our students think about uh, incorporating numbers and data into stories, and how do you tell stories that use numbers and data? And generally, how well do you think sports reporters do, you know, using stats and numbers? And uh, what do you think they do well, and what 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 aren't they doing so well? Well, I think it's um it's harder for them to use more modern statistics because they're not really able to understand what they mean. 
So I think, um, for example, if I tell you that an OPS value is 1.2, you probably wouldn't understand that. But a batting average of, of 400, I mean, there's certain statistics in baseball that have a very strong uh, understanding. 400 batter is a great hitter. You know, th- winning 300 games as a career is a, considered a great accomplishment. 20 games in a season for a pitcher is considered to be good. So I think we're st- always will be, I mean, those are easy to talk about because everybody understands them. I know one that just I've got to throw in today, and I was just reading up on this today. George Brett, who was one of the last guys to come close to hitting 400, I think he finished around 390. But I don't remember if it was the next year, but at one point he wasn't doing too well, and his teammates were making fun of him and said he was approaching the Mendoza line, referring to Mario (laughs) Mendoza, a shortstop who was a light hitter who had kind of lowered the benchmark. He couldn't even hit 200, and the 200 level has kind of become a benchmark. How much does that happen where you see things where certain things, which really aren't necessarily statistically based, all of a sudden become a very popular thing in the media that everybody refers to like that. Well, for example, currently we think that 100 pitches in a game for a pitcher <laughs> is a, one of those things you don't want to break. And once, right. a, once a pitcher throws 100 pitches, he's out. And I really think it's going to happen in like five years. We're going to, we're going to change that. I mean, it's not going to be 100 pitches anymore. We're going to have a different – I think we're still learning about pitcher fatigue. And um, we're so worried about injuries that uh, – but I don't think there's really good evidence to say that 100 is the right number. But once those numbers are used, then they become like, uh, you know, everyone thinks that's the number to use. Do you think that some of these these new metrics that are coming about are, are starting – we've talked about them influencing kind of player selection and right. team management. We've talked a little bit about the, it modifying some of what's happening during the management of a game, game management, not just team management. So what, where do you see the, the greatest uh, opportunity for increasing the impact of, of these ideas in the, in the game? Well, I think – for example, um, decisions like on how to advance runners, um, advancing the second base or those kind of things, stealing. I think people have to use analytics to understand about the value of those things. I think, um, I think running in baseball is not as well understood as we'd like it to think. So I think we need – I think but nowadays there are ways of measuring the contribution of running. So it's going to be a while before those things are accepted. We still focus on things like batting. That's easier to measure. Are there other areas where you think we're eventually, you, you mentioned the running aspect, other things where you think we're going to see more of that uh, in the future in baseball? Because it seems like a lot of people would think we're, we're saturated out right now, but do you see other things that are, that are on the horizon? There? Well, currently, every single pitch that's thrown in baseball is photographed. And so we have measurements on traject- on the movement of pitches, the type of pitches. Um, uh, everyone's talking now about how Roy Halliday's his, his pitch speed. That's being important. I think what's going to happen now will be we also are starting to measure things like uh, fielder location, locations of hits. We can actually quantify. We can talk, say this person hit so many line drives. So we're going to start to learn even more about um, about baseball. Question: What what sport do you think is going to be the next one that's going to be majorly impacted by the idea of well, analytics? Well, I think in sport? I think the the sport in the world that's the most popular is soccer. And I think that's the area where people are trying more and more to use baseball types of measures. But it's much harder to quantify. And I think the fact that they're measuring uh, the spatial locations of players is going to be a, a positive thing. And eventually we'll get better measures. Well, we certainly hope you all have enjoyed 
our discussion on stats and stories today of, of baseball and the stats behind the game. Our special thanks to uh, Jim Albert joining us today, statistics professor from Bowling Green State University and uh, co-author of the book uh, Curveball. We also want to thank our regular panelists, Richard Campbell, uh, journalism department uh, director and statistics department chair John Baylor here at Miami University. I'm Bob Long. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where once again, we'll be talking about the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics from everything from sports to politics to consumer issues. 